Hello, everyone. This is Raise Your Voice as part of the D-Raise Bay Podcast Network. I'm Brett Rutherford, and with me today is Danny Russell. But Danny, we are joined by one other special guest in just a few moments. Tell me about him. Oh, we've been saving this one. It's friend of the site, former writer for D-Raise Bay, former uh, managing editor of Beyond the Box Score, and current CBS Sports contributor, RJ Anderson. Uh, he sometimes uh, gets circulated frequently in the Rays Twitter sphere if you're on Twitter and following the Rays. Uh, but he has a lot of really great perspective and a very long view lens of the team, its history, and uh, where the industry is at today. So there's a lot of value to be had in this conversation. Well, without further delay, here's our conversation with RJ Anderson. RJ, the, the biggest story, I think, going around Major League Baseball right now is... Uh, the sticky stuff, I guess we can call it, uh, use of things like spider tack, and we've got really awkward answers from pitchers like Garrett Cole, and I, I think everybody's expecting a lot of league-wide changes um, and some results from pitchers, and I think the Rays can probably expect some sort of change in results um, from from their pitching staff. Uh, do you think this is going to have like a, a very noticeable effect throughout the rest of the season, or is it just a bunch of crap? That's a good question, and I don't really have a great answer for it just because I don't really know the kind of effect that you know, this is going to have. I mean, you know, the league seems to think it's prevalent throughout, and I certainly have no reason to not believe that just because, you know, we have some evidence that a lot of pitchers are using it. You know, there was that lawsuit uh, by the former Los Angeles Angels clubby where he named a bunch of pitchers who had reached out to him to get his special grip mix or you know, whatever you want to call it. So uh, the question about you know, whether this is going to impact performance or whatever, um, my guess is that we will see some shift just because it does seem like pitchers had taken this a little too far, um, you know, in baseball. Who would ever have thought that someone would take a little too far in a supposed gray area? You know, we haven't had any recent examples of that, have we? But, <laughs> um, you know, on an individual pitcher basis, it's hard to say who's going to benefit or not benefit the most from that. But I do think we'll probably see hitting take a step forward just because it seems so prevalent. And certainly the pitchers think they're getting something out of it to be using it like they are. What risk would the Rays be at in thinking about trade acquisitions and even a recent acquisition? Uh, you've done some mm-hmm. tweeting about JP Firerizen. That's a high spin rate guy. It is and a high spin rate guy. Use of sticky tack or or spider tack or whatever the sticky situation might be. That's not on a medical report. So mm-hmm. do you have to rely upon scouting or do you need to rely upon word of mouth? Or can you straight up ask a player? <laughs> how how do you steer through that if you trade for a guy for his spin rate and then MLB is dropping this on you? Yeah, that's a great question as well. And I guess, number one, we don't know if it's a proportional drop, right? Like, we don't know if Pitcher X is using the stuff and he gets off of it, if the spin rate is going to revert to the same proportion that, you know, Pitcher Y might. So, you know, you have to try to identify the innate talent there, uh, the innate ability to spin the ball. And I guess there are a few different ways to do that. You know, you mentioned scouting. You can actively watch the pitcher and see if he's, you know, touching his glove or, you know, touching his hat or touching his belt buckle or... I mean, Clay Buckholz used to uh, rub the sunscreen on his arm at the trop. <laughs> there there are some obvious ones. Oh, yeah, the bullfrog mix. Yeah, I remember, like I mean, like you said, at the trop, I remember those Red Sox pitchers loading up the ball. You could see him rub their forearm before almost every pitch. And sometimes it's that obvious. Uh, I know people who are actually, you know, trained to look for these things, be it 
other players or scouts or what have you probably pick up on it more than you or I might. But uh, in addition to that, I think you can look at analytics and because teams have so much uh, historic data now on spin rates, you know, you probably have it dating back to when these guys were amateurs. So you can compare that and see if there's any massive jump and if there's an explanation for that. Um, I know that Trevor Bauer, among others, has said there's no way to increase your spin rate without using some kind of substance. I don't know if that's the gospel or not, but, you know, you can kind of look at the historical data and interpret based on what you know about that player, whether it seems like they kind of started loading up the ball here in the past, you know, few months or what have you. Um, And then, yeah, I guess you could probably ask around. I mean, you know, with the rate of transactions that the Rays make, you're probably going to find some kind of overlap. And, you know, players, I don't know if they're necessarily rat each other out, but if it could potentially make a difference in their team winning or losing, then maybe they would say, yeah, I think he's, you know, using the stuff or no, he's not using the stuff. But I feel like the first two methods are probably a little bit more bulletproof. Well, I, I do want to be clear on my question. I wasn't saying anything specifically about JP Firebrazen. I was speaking sure. about the risk. Uh, that's not necessarily to y'all on the podcast, but for you, dear listener, uh, I was not insinuating anything about JPF. I was just wondering out loud, when you acquire a high spin rate guy, what is the risk when the Rays uh, might, might look to whatever the next acquisition might be. The Rays are also not a high spin rate team. It's not like the Astros where there's a clear pattern of this is the thing. They, they they have the things they want to acquire. It's all the awkward arm angles and the rising fastball. And that's somewhat related to spin rate to some degree. But uh, uh, the only high spin rate guys are what? Uh, Rich Hill and Andrew Kittredge other than JP Firehorizon, I think. And so it'll be interesting to track to see um, if MLB is coming down hard and if we do see any dip. And RJ, how how important do you think it is like the way players are going to be covered as this kind of plays out over the we saw the Garrett Cole clip where he kind of froze and uh, he gave a really long-winded answer when he probably could have said, "Eh, maybe I just, you know, used this stuff in the past because this doesn't feel like to me like cheating. You know, it doesn't feel like what the Astros did or what some other teams have done in the past. This seems like a pretty league-wide approach that like most pitchers are using something uh you know when when they're on the mound. So how important it is how how important do you think it is uh that that players are are kind of covered in the right light uh, as some more of this stuff kind of gets cracked down on. Yeah, I think you're going to see instances like the Cole example and Frankly, I mean, I don't know how I didn't have a better answer prepared. I think everyone knew he was going to be asked that. So it's kind of a, a mistake on his part and also on, you know, the Yankees communication department's part. I mean, come on. That was like the most obvious question. Um, but in regards to how the players are going to be treated, unfortunately, I think you're going to see them villainized. I mean, look, is there a huge difference between whatever Garrett Cole and some of these other pitchers are using and what – you know, pitchers used 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I mean, Joel Peralta was one of my favorite relievers, and it was pretty clear he was using fine sorry. He got ejected for it, got suspended for it. You know, what's the difference there? And I'm not really sure the answer. You know, I, I've seen some of the studies and data suggesting, yes, you can gain a couple hundred RPMs on your spin rate. But, you know, when it gets down to it, what exactly does that mean? You know, how much better does it actually make a pitcher? I don't have the answers for that. So I do think we're going to see the – the villainization just because there's so much unknown and it's kind of hard to put this into context. Whereas, you know, the parallel that everyone wants to draw to the steroids era was, okay, you know, home runs, that's easy to conceptualize, right? You know, if you're adding five to 10 home runs a year, we all know 
what that means going from being a 20 home run hitter to a 30 home run hitter or a 35 home run hitter to a 40 home run hitter. Like there's a very obvious uh, tangible effect there. And that's just not, that's just not, not present in this conversation because of the terms and kind of the uh, harder to grasp concepts. So do you think you'll see them villainized? I'm not saying they should be or shouldn't be. I do kind of agree. It's a little different than the Astros just because of, again, that mystery, that shout of mystery and uncertainty. So that's my expectation. Um, hopefully it doesn't get too ugly, but we'll see. I thought of Joel Peralta this morning. Lindsay Adler had a big piece in The Athletic discussing mm-hmm. the whole sticky situation, uh, all the aspects of where it came from, how this was never really enforced before. And one of the things she noted was previously MLB relied upon opposing managers going out and calling the other pitcher as, as yeah. being someone who used stuff. And I was thinking like, when have I ever seen that? And I was like, it's Jim Leland. It's when the Rays are playing the Tigers and he walked up and said, that's my former pitcher. He has pine tar in his glove and totally outed Peralta in the middle of a game. And it was wild. And I still don't really yeah. understand his motivations for that. It was Davey Johnson. Um, but yeah, Jim Leland was actually involved with the World Series that one year where Kenny Rogers had uh, seemingly pine tar over his hand and Tony La Russa wouldn't actually go out there and um, have him injected. I think he just wiped Excuse off me. his hand and kept throwing. So it's kind of funny. I, but yeah, I just Davey Johnson, my managers. <laughs> yeah. But no, the Davy Johnson thing was funny because I remember Madden's reaction to that was to cast the nationals as the bad guys. It was like they had violated the rules by asking for, um, asking for Peralta to be checked. And I just, I was like, man, that is a wild thing. I, I know it's part of a manager's job. It's just so funny to me that Madden would be like, you know, no, they're actually wrong here, even though it's our guy who's technically violating the rules. But gosh, I love Peralta. And I think we took the calling of Joey Pintar after that because it was just like, you know, it's such it's a Joel Joey Peralta thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's such a Joel Peralta thing. I mean, I loved watching him pitch because he he basically used every trick in the book, right? Quick pitch, you know, he would, he would uh, throw all kinds of, he would throw splitters up in the zone, which is, you know, something that's a little bit more common now. Like you see Giolito throw his change up in, the, up in the zone. But back then, you didn't really see that as much. So yeah, I'm a big Joel Peralta fan. I'm glad we worked him into this. Well, thinking of who the Rays now have uh, in yeah. their bullpen, uh, you've had a lot online about J.P. Fireisen. Did he get kind of unheralded or undersold in this acquisition? Because it's pretty clear he's walked in as, if not the closer, a very high leverage reliever. Yeah, I don't know if he was necessarily undersold because, you know, it's kind of the warp and the wolf of being an older reliever. You know, he doesn't really have a lot of a track record at the big league level. Uh, he wasn't highly drafted. He was never highly touted as a prospect. But, you know, when you watched him in Milwaukee earlier this year and obviously now with Tampa Bay, it's clear that, you know, he has a big league caliber arm and he could pitch high leverage innings, man, as long as his command's there. Uh, and, you know, he's a very interesting profile because, uh, you know, it's something we've talked about before. And, you know, it's just, he's, it's interesting because it shows kind of the evolution and how you evaluate fastballs. Um, you know, Fire Eisen has the highest inverted vertical break on his heater. Can you break that down a bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about 22 inches. So just to give you a frame of reference, that's more than John Means and Sean Doolittle and Trevor Bauer and James Karinczak. Uh So some pretty good fastballs that you would consider, you know, risers. And what what it measures is the distance between where the ball crosses home plate and where it would have crossed had it traveled in a straight line from release. But 
affected by gravity. There is another measure out there where it's unaffected by gravity. So this gives you a little bit more of a, a true reading on it. And basically that means that the ball travels in a way that kind of creates an optical illusion for the hitter. You know, the rise ball is supposed to be sort of a myth. Well, in cases like Fire Eisen's, it's not really a myth because the, it doesn't sink as much as the hitter's mind thinks it will. So they're prone to swinging underneath it, whether that means whipping it on it or, you know, popping it up or, you know, hitting it, mishitting it. So it's like a lazy fly, fly out instead of, you know, something more severe. And um, I would note that it's kind of a small sample, but since that trade, he's bumped up his fastball usage from 40% or 41% to around 63%. So it's clear that the Rays identified that as, you know, something that was a strength in his arsenal and something that they wanted to leverage more. And it's kind of funny too, because when you watch him, he's a short strider. You know, he's not someone who really gets down the mound and it kind of plays into this idea of, you know, fastballs needing various elements. You know, there's velocity, obviously there's perceived velocity, which extension can play into that. There's the vertical and horizontal approach angle, which I think you kind of you kind of alluded to by saying the Rays like the you know weird arm angle guys, so that plays into it. And then there's stuff like this where it's just pure movement and uh, deception. And I think that Fire Eisen has that going in his favor. So the biggest trade the Rays made this past offseason, they trade Blake Snell mm-hmm. to San Diego. Um, they bring back a number of prospects, probably the biggest of whom was Luis Patino. Um, he started the year at the alternate training site. He gets called up when the Rays are dealing with um, some injury issues. And he was used more of like an opener rather than a starter going two, maybe three innings uh, to start a game. I think he was used out of the bullpen once or twice, but now goes back to AAA Durham. What what do you think the Rays view him as? Do you think they view him as a starter moving forward? And and what do you think this season has kind of done to his development as as a prospect? Well, with the Rays, you know, the typical definition of starter probably doesn't apply. I think that you both know and everyone listening knows that they take a different approach to their starting pitchers and, there's sort of a hybrid role they've created where you might throw three or four innings. You might face a lineup twice, maybe even a few batters over that, depending on the game situation. But it's not like it used to be where you're expecting your so-called starter to go out there and throw six innings every time out and give you 180 plus innings over the course of a full season. So I do think they view him as a long pitcher, you know, a length pitcher, someone who can turn over a lineup a couple of times. I don't know if they necessarily view him as a workhorse type or, you know, a James Shields type or anything like that, but there's certainly value in getting, you know, four or five innings from him every time out. And, you know, he has big stuff. Um, I want to return to what I was saying about fire eyes and, and how there are elements to a fastball. Well, with mm-hmm. Patino, Patino, he gets 6.88 feet of extension on his fastball. And that's the distance from his release point to the pitching rubber. And as you both know, he's listed at about six foot one. So we're talking about someone who is very skilled at getting down the mound and releasing the ball closer to the plate. And that adds about a mile per hour to his fastball. I believe he checks in at 94, 95 already. So you're talking about someone who's actually playing quicker than that because of the distance he's able to traverse on that mound. And uh, So basically for, Patino, no, even though he's not as tall as Tyler Glass now, the kind of uh, textbook case for extra extension adding heat to their fastball he is a more standard or more average major league pitcher height but he gets crazy extension also that is perfect i was going to say for reference tyler glass now had been the majors leader at 7.45 feet and he's listed mm-hmm. at six foot eight so it just kind of shows you that patino is really uh, you know 
getting down that mound and he's doing it in a way that, you know, it's not quite Tyler Glass now. You know, Glass now basically hands the ball to the catcher, but it's pretty impressive, especially for his size. And it helps his stuff play up in a way that you may not have necessarily perceived if you, you know, weren't looking at those numbers or if we didn't have the tools to measure that stuff these days. Brett, to answer your question directly, I also think uh, there was great benefit to Patino, who had already experienced the majors, uh, to just work with Kyle Snyder to be up and get those reps in from a coaching perspective, from the pitching perspective. Um, at the time, the minor league season hadn't even started yet, I believe, and, or if it was, it was just about to get started. All those players were still in a transition state. And I think slotting Patino onto the major league side immediately even though he wasn't ready to be Shane McClanahan uh, was a big benefit for him just in terms of development and playing with this stuff. I mean, the slider has been different from him pretty much every time he goes out in minute ways, but over the course, if he had stayed at the majors the whole season, I think we would have seen progression and stuff. So I think he gets stretched out now. Uh, His last start in Durham, he went four innings, looked really good. You know, I I think, yeah, he'll, he'll get back to that point just a matter of when and kind of what the Rays need to do in, in 2021, because right now they're playing, I mean, really the best baseball in the American league after a sluggish first few weeks of the season. Um, they've been the best team in baseball since like RJ, like, do you think going for your expectations? Yeah, this is the big question. This is the big question. Uh, this is the, the big reason why we wanted RJ on the pod. Are the Rays good RJ? Is it real? Yeah, I think they're good. Um, if we're talking about best Ooh. team in baseball level good, no, I wouldn't go that far. I do think they're yeah, – well, I guess I would say this. Look, we're, there are two different ways to look at this question. There's the descriptive method, which is what's happened so far over the first third of the season. And then there's more of the predictive method, which is what's going to happen over the next two-thirds of the season. And I think either way, you know, depending on what you're wanting to answer, they're good. Uh, they're going to be in playoff contention. You know, They certainly have the means for – internal improvement through promotion and trades if they want to go that route. And, you know, you look at what they've done so far, I believe entering today, they had the best winning percentage in the American league and they were second in run differential behind the White Sox. And they were third in base runs in the AL, which is, you know, kind of a wonky stat. And, you know, if you're listening and you have no idea what base runs is fair enough, I'm not going to try to explain it because it gets a little too nerdy, even for my taste uh, sometimes, but, it's a basically a more predictive measure. So, you know, everything is saying they are probably a top five team in the majors based on what they've done so far, even the measures, they're a little bit more predictive, like the run differential and the base runs are saying, yeah, they're a top five team. So I'm comfortable saying they're a good team. I just don't know if I would say they're the best team in baseball. Do you think the Rays were expecting to be this good? Or do you think they expected to kind of just be in contention going into 2021, given all the moves they made in the offseason? I think if you give them some truth serum, they'd probably say they didn't expect to be this good. I don't think anyone necessarily expects to have the best uh, team in baseball, unless you're maybe the Dodgers or the Padres. And even then you have to contend with, you know, your rival. So, you know, I think they probably expected to be in that 80 plus win range and knowing that they had some prospects they could bring up who, if they hit the ground running, could bump that a little higher. Yeah. I I guess they thought they were going to be, competitive just probably not this good i mean i think the biggest example is rich hill like i don't think the rays one going into the season the, the rays didn't expect him to be a quote-unquote traditional starter which we know the the lines are kind of blurred there anyways um but really for the last month and a half he has been and not only has he played that traditional starter role he's done it better than anybody in the american league 
yeah, I'll be honest, you know, watching Rich Hill in April, I wasn't sure that he would make it to this point on the active roster. You know, he wasn't really missing bats. I think his contact percentage in April was over 80%. Um, he just didn't really look like himself. And, you know, given his age and given his injury history, you know, you never know when a stretch of four or five bad starts. It's just, you know, a stretch of four or five bad starts, or if it's you know, basically the beginning of the end or the end in some cases. Uh, but in May, he was much, much better. He started elevating his pitches more, uh, used his fastball more. He had a contact rate, I think it was like 66% or something. So he really started missing barrels, missing bats. And, you know, it's good to see because Rich Hill is, you know, such a joy to watch. Uh, it's such an incredible story of perseverance. And, you know, it's something that I think only can happen in baseball. I don't think you'd see a story like that in any other sport. So I hope he keeps it going. I hope he has a few more years in the tank. And, you know, I'm a sucker for stories like that. And so been cool to see certainly not in a team sport i could uh you know golf <laughs> phil mickelson yeah. uh, goes out there and does it again tiger goes out there and does it again uh but from a team sport perspective putting the team on your back it's been insane you know we've been able to learn that the rays were even uh or had already approached hill and said will you be an opener and mm-hmm. be willing to pitch in in lesser amounts and then immediately a couple guys got injured including michael walker who he probably would have pitched in front of and so now by necessity hill had to absorb all those innings and he was the pitcher of the month just absurd that's funny how that works but we have seen like his last two starts they pulled him after five innings both of those starts he was under 60 pitches um this this week they pushed tyler glass now start back two days to get the extra off day and then monday's off day there is a concerted effort now i think because both glass now and hill and amongst other pitchers have been pitching i think more innings than anybody that follows the rays would expect do you think that's going to continue into the summer? They're going to make sure they limit these guys' workloads? Yeah, I would I would expect so. I mean, that's part of the benefit of getting off to a really good start is that you don't have to necessarily keep your foot on the gas to the same extent. And, you know, I can't sit here and tell you that I have their game plan for what they're going to do innings-wise for some of these pitchers, but I think it makes sense to be proactive in getting these some of these arms extra rest. I mean, I just mentioned Hill has – you know, pretty extensive injury history. And I think you have to be cognizant of that and do your best to manage it. And, you know, in addition, when you're talking about some of the other arms they have, where it's Aptinia, who you don't want to overexpose and you don't want to, you know, add too many innings to his workload or, you know, basically anyone else. Because keep in mind, you know, this is a very unusual set of circumstances coming off a short season where there was no minor league camp. There was minor league season, excuse me. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the league also manages this. I do expect that you're going to see more conservation and more you know, proactive measures by every team, including Tampa Bay. It's worth mentioning by pushing Glass now's uh, start out by one game. He now lines up with the White Sox. That'll be fun. <laughs> so that's next Monday. So the reason I've had some prospects come up, um, you know, I wasn't really planning to dive into this, but when I think about what the team is today and where it's going from here, Shane McClanahan comes to mind as also a surprise. Yeah. Uh, I would think that a traditional assessment on him would have been a reliever, not a starter. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, I thought he was a reliever and to his credit, obviously he's proven that wrong so far. He's also a a test case for, he showed up and started throwing a new slider (laughs) and it makes you wonder uh, how much data kind of plays that role. Um, The modern front office is clearly able to invent these breaking balls out of nothing. Um, 
Now, maybe he picked it up on his own. I don't know the full yeah. relationship or what percentage is data driven and what percentage is just uh, good pitchers adjust and learn and, and, and become something new. Yeah, I don't know the genesis of that specific pitch, but nowadays you have so many pitching labs and uh, you know methods to see your pitches in super slow motion and you know use the Rapsido machine and get the exact spin rate and the spin efficiency and all this stuff. And also, you know, the online community has kind of fostered this sharing mentality. You know, you see pitchers show their grips and give advice on other pitcher stuff, and you know it's pretty cool and it's certainly a departure from where we were. You know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even when it was kind of assumed that for the most part, what the pitches that you had were the pitches you were going to have. I knew there were, there were always examples, you know, to the contrary, for instance, the Chicago White Sox used to be the team that taught everyone a cutter. Um, but for the most part, you know, it was kind of more, I guess I wouldn't say it was a static thing, but it was assumed to be more static than it has proven to be nowadays. Yeah. And, and Glasner would be the, again, a textbook case uh where he yeah. grew his slider in a lab right he it's the mewtwo of pitches it was invented <laughs> uh it took something good and invented something even stronger all right anyway uh on the on the defense side taylor walls have you gotten a good look at him and did you have any expectations for what he would be uh particularly as someone who gets to slot into shortstop immediately after adamas is traded yeah i haven't gotten a good look at him i've been intending to sit down and watch a lot of his defensive plays and also some of his at-bats. Unfortunately, work hasn't allowed that. Um, but the expectation based on what I'd heard from people was that he was a good defensive shortstop. He was the best defensive shortstop on that Durham squad. He was probably going to be the race shortstop of the future. I know other teams really liked him. You know, he's kind of flown under the radar a little bit if you're more of a national fan or a casual observer because you know, he's stuck on a team with Wander Franco and uh, Bruhan and you know, even Josh Lowe was a first round pick and Walls wasn't that. So it's been kind of easy to overlook him, but I think he's going to be a quality player. I think he's probably at least a second division starter. And I wasn't surprised that he got the call after the Adamas trade. And I wasn't surprised they traded Adamas to clear a spot for him. So uh, even though I haven't necessarily had that firsthand experience of watching him a lot, um, you know, I'm not surprised by a lot of what's happened. I mean, you mentioned Bruhan and Franco, two prospects that are definitely not mm-hmm. under the radar. Uh, what's it going to take? Is it going to take another big trade from this Rays active roster to make room for either of those prospects? That's going to take the Super Two deadline passing as well. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I when is think, that? Do you do you have that uh, kind of calculated in your brain? I don't have the exact date, but it's usually in mid June, maybe late June. Um, of course, you know the flip side of that is maybe Super Two doesn't exist in the next CBA, and this is all for not. But yeah, I think it's reasonable to think Tampa Bay can make another trade between now and, you know, July 30th to clear a little bit more room. You know, Mike Barrasso would make sense to move him or Kevin Padlow. Or, you know, if you want to get really aggressive, you can maybe look to move Brandon Lau or, you know, some of these other hitters. I You know, generally speaking, there's not many raised players you would consider untouchable. You know, maybe Glass now, but given that he's going to be two years away from free agency this winter, I don't know. Maybe they look to pull off another Blake Snell trade with him if he won't sign a long-term extension. So for the most part, you know, if you're a Tampa Bay Ray player, you are very much available almost at any time. And it's just a matter of whether another team will give up what they want in return. Before we get back to our conversation with RJ Anderson, here is a quick word from our sponsors. 
does Mike Barroso still have trade value right now when he's, I mean, he's performed and not up to his own standards as a bench player. Yeah, I, I think he does because of the track record. And, you know, you can kind of break down, you know, the batted ball data. The last time I looked at it, which is a couple of weeks ago, to be honest, uh, it looked fine. You know, it looked like he was still hitting the ball well and it was just a matter of time before he got going. But I haven't been watching his bats like you two have. And I would defer to y'all on whether he looks like he's still capable of being a bench piece or even a platoon piece. I mean, I've never been confident in Brasho, uh, even when he's outperformed his expectations. So this year it's been uh, much of the same. Um, but yeah, go. I don't know. His, his I mean, value... I think, uh, to, to out myself, uh, before the 2020 season, I told Neander that Mike Brasso had no business being on a major league roster. And then uh, he, he hit that home run in the playoffs. So Well, you know, Danny, I said the same thing about Joey Wendell a few years ago. So of those two, I think you actually come out looking better there. Um, I, oh, you I mean the like best player on the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, Joey Wendell? Yeah, I got I got to eat my crow. I was wrong. And the sad thing is, and the embarrassing thing is, it's not even the biggest error I made with that profile. I would say the one that stands out even more than Mr. Wendell is Jose Altuve. I did not think he was good uh, when they gave him that extension. They being the Astros, of course. I was like, okay, why? And then, of course, he turned into an MVP, so... You know, next time there's a slap hitting second baseman, <laughs> I might just want to shut up, right? Sure. I mean, I, I agree with you 100% with Joey Wendell. I still doubt what Joey Wendell is going to do tonight. Uh, he has a, a fantastic track record. He's the best performing hitter on the team over the season. And uh, a no power, no walk, uh, supposed profiled second baseman who's manning third base full time and knocking the crap out of the ball. Like, I it blows my mind and he just breaks every rule I had in my brain in terms of expectations. Yeah. I got to tip my cap to him, you know, whatever he's doing, obviously it's working. It doesn't necessarily appeal to me. You know, if there was a prospect of that same profile, I'd be like, eh, he's not for me, but it keeps working, keeps producing. And, you know, the same, I guess can be said of Mike Zanino, who's having an outstanding if weird year as well. And well, in tandem with Francisco Mejia, who was acquired in that Snell mm -hmm. trade, Again, like another move where it's like, yeah, I'm sure the Rays liked Francisco Mejia, uh, but there's just no way they expected him to be, you know, the, t the type of player he has been to start this season. Yeah, it's a trade where you pray for rain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, it's better to be lucky than good, is the old saying, and I think that's true in baseball. You know, sometimes you just acquire players, and for whatever reason, they take off, you know, be it luck, be it the circumstances. You know, you mentioned Kyle Snyder earlier. He has a great reputation in the game. He probably has gotten more out of some of these pitchers than anyone should have reasonably expected. And if they did expect this, then, you know, all power to them because that's a pretty impressive call. As the the gap grows, if if it grows in the AL East, I know yeah. it's only a game and, game and a half lead over the Red Sox, but you look at like the Yankees, six and a half back, the Blue Jays are, are even behind them. You expect those teams in the AL East to be aggressive on the trade market going into uh, July would that force the Rays to to then in turn be look for uh, options, um, not in-house options in the trade market yeah. in July? Or are they going to kind of march to the beat of their own drum? You know, I assume it's more of the latter. You know, certainly I expect them to look at the trade market and see if there's a fit that makes sense and also, you know, allows them to consolidate some of their prospect wealth. You know, the, the downside to having so many good prospects is that you can only carry so many people on your 40-player roster. And so, you know, you have to be very aware of 
who's going to be eligible for the rule five this coming winter. You don't want to get, uh, you know, ramsacked and that like the Pittsburgh pirates did that one year, I think they had like five players taken. So you don't want a situation like that to arise. Uh, that said, I think Tampa Bay is in a unique position because I do think that the most impactful acquisitions they can make are on that triple a team, you know, whether it's Franco or, um, Ruhan or even Josh Lowe. I'm a, I'm a Josh Lowe fan. And I think there's some star upside there. It just comes down to, you know, how comfortable you are with the hit toll. So I think, you know, they're unique in that regard. Um, the thing is, you know, they're always going to be outmatched financially by the Red Sox and the Yankees and even the Blue Jays. So they're probably going to be shopping in a different bin anyway. And that could be advantageous sometimes because it, you know, doesn't necessarily lead you to chase, uh, certain players who might cause you to make a trade that looks bad in retrospect. You know, they're not trading prospects who maybe develop more than they anticipated for a veteran who's out the door in three months or four months or what have you. So it can be advantageous, but it can also be a drawback. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what those teams do at the deadline in part because, you know, Pine Bloom is in Boston and uh, Mark Shapiro is in Toronto and neither of those two really have a reputation for wanting to give up prospects for veterans. Uh, Brian Cashman is a little different. I think everyone expects him to you know, upgrade that lineup as he can. But, you know, it, it's almost like the Rays are dealing with two executives who kind of mirror their approach in that regard. And I don't know if that's necessarily an advantage for Tampa Bay or a disadvantage, but it's just an interesting, um, an interesting dilemma because I can't remember the last time that really happened. You know, even dating back to when Theo Epstein was in Boston, you know, he would make big trades, he would trade prospects, good prospects for veterans. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out. But, you know, if the American League East remains bunch like this, then yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun deadline, I think. When 2021 ends, is there going to be a, a white whale of the season that you're going to say, oh, that, that could have been and it never happened, and what happens if it did? Uh, the classic example would be Jason Bay back in 2008, oh, oh, no. and that trade never materialized. For me, it's Cliff Lee in 2010, and oh. that trade not materializing, and him going to the Rangers and then just mowing the Rays down in game one and five. Uh, yeah. Is there? I mean, right now, I'm thinking like, Max Scherzer. <laughs> foolishly, foolishly, I can't stop thinking yeah. about Max Scherzer. But. Nelson Cruz. Sure. Oh, Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz is kind of the white whale of this front office, right? I thought they should have signed him a few years ago. Or Josh Donaldson, even. I think what both of those guys available the same winter. Am I misremembering on that? Sounds right. Sounds right. Yeah. I, I thought they would get one of them. And well, the, the, the Cruz one was just uh, he had a I think the twins pushed him. They said, hey, here's the deal, but you need to take it now in December. And the Rays were still sorting out their finances. Right. Because they didn't make their other trades until February. That makes sense. Um, you know, I, I think I have too much exposure to the Rays to the point where I don't associate them with being like that top shelf shopper like Max Scherzer. Hey. You know, you if imagine? they go out there and get Max Scherzer, I mean, I'll tip my cap. I don't expect that at all. I think we're probably talking more like a John Gray type. And even him might be a little out of their reach. You know, someone who, you know, there's chicken left on the bone. They can get him in their system. His performance will tick up. And, you know, sort of like Zach Wheeler was a few deadlines ago. I know that they had shown interest in, in him at that point. And I think he's like the perfect fit, the perfect blueprint to use here. Someone who they can pay less than they'll actually get for, if that makes sense. You know, they'll mm -hmm. trade, you know, a couple down, down system prospects. They'll get the guy and all of a sudden he'll pitch like, uh, you know, he's an ace or close to it. It's basically Nick Anderson, except maybe with Jesus Sanchez being replaced by a prospect who's a little worse than Jesus Sanchez. 
Um, so that's my expectation. But hey, if they want to go out there and get Max Scherzer or Trevor Story or one of those real big names, then by all means, that'd be incredible. Uh, I know the fan base deserves something like that because, like you said, Jason Bay, Cliff Lee, Victor Martinez, it feels like the Rays are always like, right on the verge of that big deal. And then it falls apart and they end up going to division rival or someone they're going to play in the postseason and ends up costing them in the end. The, the pitcher you were kind of describing, I don't know, I kind of was thinking Luis Castillo when you laid out that description or, or anyone in that, yeah. in that Cincinnati rotation that could potentially be a fit for the Rays. Yeah, I'm not trading That's a, with Cincinnati. Why aren't you trading with Cincinnati? I the, I mean, the word on the street is their, uh, their trade cost is sky high. Like you, mm-hmm. you have to pay double the, the market rate to get anything out of them. And they do that because they know they have the assets, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of teams would want Sonny Gray or Luis Castillo. I think Castillo would be a heck of a get as well. And I mean, gosh, it, it would be interesting to see what the Rays would do with a guy like Castillo who has you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that's an interesting call. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other names I would throw out there. Maybe Kyle Gibson. I don't know. I've been a believer in Kyle Gibson having a little bit more to offer than his numbers actually suggest for a while. Uh, I think he has one more year left on that contract, though, and I'm not sure Tampa Bay would want to necessarily pay him. But then you go to, I mean, if you're going back to Colorado, Herman Marquis, a former Rays prospect, would be a really good fit. But um, again, I think the contract might be prohibitive. So we'll see. There, you know, maybe it's just another uh, another trade like what they made with Milwaukee, getting you know two kind of under the radar arms, and then they coach them up. If they want another lefty, Mike Miner in Kansas City could be an option. I think they had interest in Miner last deadline, but don't quote me on that. I might be mixing him up with Lance Lynn. The Angels are perennially terrible. <laughs> are they ever going to blow it up? Is Otani? It's, it, are you... it, is a, it is criminal that Otani is is wasting away on the end. It's already criminal that Trout is, but his contract yeah. is is never going to get moved. Otani, at least, is is movable from a contract perspective. Like, what, what would the Angels say yes to if Neander picked up the phone and said, dang it, I need Otani in my life? What would it take? Probably Franco, probably Franco, right? Would ask I for mean, Franco, like one for one. I don't know if they'd ask for one for one, but yeah, if I'm a little more, if I'm, yeah, yeah, probably would. Uh, I mean, come on, yeah, you gotta put yourself in the Angels' shoes here, and I think that you would have to ask for the moon. Like you're talking about when I'm wanting to deal with Cincinnati, I can't even imagine what the Angels would sure. require to get back Otani. Um, I actually thought you were going with Dylan Bundy. Or Andrew Heaney here. I was going to say, you know, I started both of those... to. I started to. I went down that uh-huh. mental uh, that mental journey, and then I was like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I'm just so mad. Raise the stakes. Exactly. That's how we. That's how we raise <laughs> up on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is going to end up in a tweet. You know, can the Rays trade for Shohei Itani? Click here to find out the answer. That's like a classic. <laughs> classic so pulling up baseball switch. trade values, baseball trade <laughs> the Bible of uh, of baseball trade machines. Um, they have Otani as worth <laughs> uh, eighty-three uh, million is for their is their value on him, which is uh, a little bit more expensive than Brandon Lau. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think I that's happening. That's, yeah, I would say that's probably not going to happen. Um, I think you could throw in Josh Lowe and get Nate Lowe back and throw him in too, and I don't think that's going to get it done. But you know, I admire aiming for the stars. <laughs> It, yeah, would would you do Franco for Otani? I wouldn't. I would do Franco. I would not. I would. What if you could get Otani to agree to an extension before the trade? He'll sign for the next, you know, five years or six years or whatever. Would you do it then? 
Yes. One hundred percent. Sensing a pattern. I hear that I gotta, sigh. That means you're really you're really deliberating. It's tempting, there. but I need to look at the medicals. Like I get worried about injury risk fair, because fair. of the pitching side. I don't know. I just saw a four hundred seventy foot home run last night, and I'm sold. <laughs> Is there a single player you would trade Franco for right now if they were to agree to a market value contract extension? Oh my God. So that's including that. Well, there's an interesting one. That would be wild. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't it think has that's to gonna be a pitcher either, you but... trust. Not. I mean, pitchers get hurt more often too, man. Imagine. What about a hitter? For... What about a hitter? I, I would feel like you there's... trade Juan Soto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, be... so I meant I, I went to, for youth first, right? So my brain did the same thing. Um, mostly, I just went his dance moves at the plate mm-hmm. uh, in a in a Rays jersey. I mean, that's just the Rays tra- trading for Ted Williams, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That would be fun, but I don't think that's going to happen either. So unfortunately, we've spent you know a few minutes here on unrealistic trade proposals. I apologize for getting us down that route because now everyone's thinking about what Juan Soto would look like and. No, that, no, it's my fault. I said Otani. I, I will wear that one. Um, Juan Soto, did, though. I did mean, no one gosh. tell him that the Angels were bad? Like, how did he end up there? Anyway. Assuming <laughs> the Rays don't trade for Shohei Otani, Jacob deGrom, or Juan Soto, <laughs> uh, as currently constructed, is this team good enough to go back to the World Series this year and ultimately win it? Yeah, I think so. You know, like I said earlier, I think it's a top five team based on everything we know right now and based on how you can protect this roster looking going forward with Franco and you know, some of the other pieces that are likely to slot in and you know, whatever they get in return for the pieces that depart, you know, obviously the postseason is kind of a different beast than the regular season. And, you know, even if you're a really good team, you're not necessarily guaranteed that you're going to make a deep run. That's just the nature of playing, you know, four to seven game series. Um, so, and I guess I would add to that, that the American League, it looks really fierce this year. You know, in the National League, yeah, you have the Padres, you have the Dodgers, maybe the Giants, if you have a wild card. But, you know, it kind of feels like the East or Central teams are a little weaker. Whereas in the American League, I mean, the top teams right now, I mean, the White Sox have the best run differential in the league. So, you know, you don't really want to play them, assuming they, you know, don't lose a couple of key contributors between now and the postseason. You don't necessarily want to play the Athletics or, the Astros, and then, of course, you have the Ever East teams. I mean, that's just a tough road. So I do think that the, the Rays have the talent and the means to get back to the World Series, but I think that if they fall a little short of that, it's not necessarily because this team was you know, flawed or not good. It's just because that's a really tough road to have to pave, and I think that you know it's reasonable to have doubts about any of those teams actually making it to the World Series at this point in time. I don't know how much you buy into this, but obviously the most stark difference between last year's roster and this year's roster is uh, no Charlie Morton and no Blake Snell. And in terms mm-hmm. of like postseason roster construction, those are two guys uh, I think that do help you when you're you know playing those four to seven game series to get two starts out of a guy like Charlie Morton or Blake Snell in the same series. Like, could that be okay? Yes, maybe this race team is built perfectly to win the division again to get back into October. But do you think that maybe they're at a disadvantage once they get there without those two? Yeah, I feel like you can go either way on that because you're right that the regular season, you kind of lean more on your depth, right? And you're able to, you know, make the roster moves and have like that, uh, you know, that uh, merry-go-round of triple-A arms bouncing in and out that really helps with Tampa Bay style. But I would know that in the postseason, you know, you also have more off days and you know what the off days are going to be and, 
you can kind of arrange your pitching staff in a way where you're taking full advantage of that. Now, you know, does that necessarily mean it's better than having Snell or Morton make two starts a piece in the long series? I don't know. You know, I'd have to really think about that and maybe even crunch the numbers, but I think that it's just a different perspective. I wouldn't necessarily think it dooms them or anything. I just think it's going to have to be a different approach. And to be fair, you know, we've mentioned some of these names throughout, uh, you know, Patino and McClanahan and uh, even like a Josh Fleming, you know, those arms could help them make up for the loss of Snell and Morton in terms of, you know, eating those innings and being versatile and all those good things. So, you know, it seems like they have some of the ingredients in hand. It's just a matter of whether it's actually going to work on the field. Yeah, it's, I, I think I'm much more comfortable with uh, 12 innings from Snell than I am from 12 innings of Fleming and Patino <laughs> against the same White Sox lineup over over a week-long series. But I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. yeah that's fair. That's very fair. Before we wrap up today, we're going to have one more quick break. So just sit tight. We'll be right back. And we're working on... Uh the various trade people we just asked about. <laughs> I'm like, Zach Wheeler's contract is five years, 118. So he's making 22 plus mil a year. Nobody cares about my fantasy team, but man, has he, has he been a league winner this year so far? Zach Wheeler has been awesome. That feels untouchable though, from a trade perspective. It makes me yeah, sad. Not going to happen. Yeah. I don't think Tampa Bay is taking on a guy making 20 million a year. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that seems unlikely to me. Maybe, maybe they can finally get Vince Velasquez. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I've got one more. Um, it's been a couple years now, and I think I, I think the kind of global economy has maybe played a role in this. But, like, we haven't seen any raise extensions recently, any like, long-term right. extensions since Brandon Lau and Blake Snell going into 2019. Right. Who is, do you think, the best candidate on this current team, and maybe even guys like Brujan and Franco, that – the Rays could try to lock up past their arbitration years. Yeah, my understanding is they've tried on Franco and that that has gotten nowhere. So uh, <laughs> I know there were rumors about Rose Arena during the winter. I don't know where those got either. Clearly, they didn't get to the finish line. I guess they were talking about, I don't know, would someone like Taylor Walls? I could see him maybe doing the brand. That's where my brain went to. Like we're, that's like a KK extension kind of thing where uh, they have an elite defender and they just want to lock up that defense for a long time and guarantee yeah. like how much that will cost. They, they probably value walls more than the market does the same way they did with, with KK. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, if you feel like you can really evaluate defense and it kind of puts you in a special class compared to everyone else, then, you know, you could probably get some discount wins that way. I mean, it's been true throughout because you know, offense is so much easier to measure and to, you know, kind of compare to everyone else. So I think that's probably the number one candidate. I guess you could maybe look at some of those young pitchers, but I mean, gosh, who was the last pitcher they actually signed to an extension? Was it Snell? Snell. And for that, was it Wade Davis before that? <laughs> Am I missing someone? Uh, there was an Archer extension after uh, Wade Davis. Yeah, Archer. That's probably it then. So yeah, they have what, really if, they, what if it was Yarbrough? Pitchers. What if they took oh. all the nonsense about Yarbrough's reputation <laughs> and oh. that made that made him come to the table and say like I'll lock something in? Yarbrough's having a down year. If you think that that is a um, yeah, uh, I would that would be interesting. I don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, I what like would it be? Four years, but somewhere between fifteen and twenty million. I mean, the, this is his age twenty nine season. So, how much longer do you think Yarbrough is going to last anyway? Uh, it's definitely going to be the young guys who they try to extend. Maybe it's Fleming. 
if you could slap a cheap contract extension, cheap relative to the market contract extension sure. on Josh Fleming, what a trade asset he becomes. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, I guess the counter factual there is, well, you have him under team control through, I think, 2026. So, you know, that sort of serves as a cheap extension. I, I mean, he's 25, right? So 2026, right. he's going to be 30-ish. Um, you know, I don't know how other teams view him, to be honest with you. I assume as a back-end guy. Uh, obviously, some teams are kind of moving toward that raised mindset of, you know, let's not put these hard and fast rolls on pitchers. Let's just view them as outgetters and, you know, we'll figure out how exactly they fit into the context of a game when we need to. Um, but yeah, I guess he's kind of interesting. I, my guess though, is they would probably just view his team control as being its own extension and that they didn't need or wouldn't need necessarily to invest actual guaranteed money in him because of that. The only players younger than Fleming are, uh, Taylor Walls is 24 mm-hmm. and Randy's 26. Meadows is 26. I don't, I don't think 20, Oh, Shane Meadows. McClanahan. Shane McClanahan is 24. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Meadows is the least likely of those guys to get extended. I would expect him to be on a different roster heading into next year, even though he's really hit the ball well this year and obviously had a good 2019. I just think that, you know, they'll probably end up moving him. I don't think Bruhan would surprise me. Um, he's just really wanted to bet on him. Yeah, I, I guess it depends, right? Because I know, you know, I've talked around the game and I've floated the idea of, oh, you know, maybe they trade here Meyer and they slap Bruhan in center field or, you know, Josh Lowe or whomever. Um, but the thinking is, you know, if you move Bruhan to the outfield, you might actually be better suited to trade him as an infielder and assume that some other team would give up more value because then, you know, if he's just a center fielder, and obviously center field is a very important defensive position. I'm not trying to undersell that, but I'm saying within the context of who the Rays have, you know, if he's just a center fielder, he might actually have more trade value than inherent value. Uh, I don't know if I buy that or not. I'm just passing along something that I've been told in conversations, and that wasn't mm-hmm. from a Rays source, to be clear. So I don't know. It's something to think about there when you, when you talk about his long-term future with the team. I would not be surprised by a Brandon Lau trade. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. Uh, yeah. And I- – yeah, that's going to happen this winter. I I would assume it's going to happen this winter. I shouldn't speak definitively because obviously plans can change. But yeah, it would just make sense, right? Obviously, it's really easy to like look at Brandon Lau's numbers this year and be like, okay, he's struggling at the plate. So the yeah. question then becomes, and there was an article on our site about it this past offseason, like did the Rays miss the mark on, on trading Brandon Lau at his highest value last winter? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know, it's... It's really a, a delicate dance, right, to try to balance trading these players when they reach what we perceive to be their peak value versus trying to win ball games. And, you know, I know Branch Ricky said it's better to be a year early than a year late, but I think that I would be willing to make exceptions when you have a good roster and you're potentially going to be in you know, be there in the division race, be there in the pennant race or what have you. I don't know. I tend to lean towards, you know, competing as much as you can rather than trying to maximize your return. Now, you know, if this is a Colorado Rocky situation, I would, you know, be ranting about how they missed the mark on Arenado and Trevor Story and uh, even John Gray and maybe Marquise. But because of the race situation, because of their compete level over the last few years, it's harder for me to, you know, stress out about that, even if I know that, yeah, that's, certainly something they have to contend with and 
balance, you know, year after year is can we get, you know, the peak return on a guy trade wise and their competitiveness. So I don't know. They may have missed the window, but, you know, it's hard for me to hold it against them if that makes sense. And I'll agree that the Rays historically have had a couple of players they hold on to. Carl Crawford would be the peak example. I know that was slightly oh, different yeah. people at the top of the food chain in the front office, but some guys, you just have to ride out their value. G-Man Choi, you're not going to get a return on value <laughs> for G-Man Choi uh, in terms of what he brings at the plate and what he brings for the fan base. Like no one else values G-Man Choi as highly as, as the Rays do. And perhaps yeah. the same problem with KK. You can't even move him because people don't value him the same. Yeah, and I would say I think it's easier to hold on to the players when they're hitters. I think when you look at Andrew Friedman's tenure, you know, he moved Shields, he moved Casimir, he moved Wade Davis, he moved David Price. Uh, the hitters, though, you know, he let Crawford go to free agency. He let um, Baldelli go to free agency. He let Upton go to free agency. Yeah, so it seems like he maybe was more likely to hold on to the hitters just because they feel less volatile. Uh, you know, there's less risk of injury or what have you. Whereas the new front office, you know, they traded Longoria and they traded, um, you know, some other position players like Tommy Pham. And I don't know. It's an interesting dilemma they have to face. I'm glad I'm not the one making that decision then because I would probably probably go great pretty quickly. It's a lot more fun talking about them on podcasts than it is to actually make the decision. I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that 100%. Well, RJ, uh, thank you for, for coming on and uh, good luck uh, riding the rest of the season. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I got to tell y'all, uh, tip my cap to what y'all have done with D-Rays Bay. You know, I was there way long time ago. And to see what the site has developed into is, you know, pretty remarkable. So, you know, all the credit goes to y'all and y'all's hard work. So kudos and you know, keep it up. Thanks, Reese. Love you, buddy. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Raise Your Voice. Huge thanks to RJ Anderson for hopping on this week to talk Rays. And really the rest of the league, too, as we head into July, I think trade talks are going to heat up uh, across baseball and especially in the American League East, where it seems to be, uh, I guess, still you could say a four horse race, even though the Yankees and Blue Jays are slipping further and further uh, down the standings. Um, But yeah, thank you guys for listening. That's going to do it. I'll talk to you guys next week.